Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Welcome back to Awakening Shalom. I am Mia McLean, and I'm here with Ben Boswell, and we are diving into a new four-part series called I'm Spiritual, But Not Religious. That's now, right. <laughs> how many of y'all have heard that before? Yes, I bet they have. I bet a lot of them have heard I'm Spiritual, But Not Religious. A lot of them are listening to this podcast saying I am Spiritual, spiritual But Not, not religious. religious. Exactly. We might be talking to you today. So we, we're diving into this series because we have a wonderful member who sent us an article that was talking a little bit about this, um, and she was interested in exploring this conversation. Um, but also, I mean, as our church changes and as the world changes, and we'll get into some of the stats a little bit later, we're seeing more and more people identifying as spiritual yes. but not religious. Yes. I want to start off by saying if you are SBNR <laughs> or spiritual but not religious or you identify that way, uh, as we are in a year of identity, we applaud you for doing the work of identification. But we also want you to know we love you. Mm-hmm. We love SBNR people. We love them. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be reasons as we go through the podcast, which you'll find that why we love spiritual but not religious folks, because uh, their identification has helped us pinpoint certain movements within our culture, certain problems within the church and organized religion in general, uh, and also ways in which religion has failed in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is our part of our work as a church in the 21st century is to try to figure out why are there so many people who are identifying this way? Right. And what does it mean to be a church who has people both within and outside its walls who are identifying as SBNR? So mm-hmm. this is important work for us in this year of identity, too. It is. It is. And I, I'm sure you've heard this. If you are or aren't SBNR, mm. um, which I'm new to that term, I'm sure you've heard <laughs> this before in many facets of your life. And I, I want to start off with a few quick stories, which always happens to people like us who work in ministry. Mm, we'll mm-hmm. go out somewhere and have dinner with somebody, and they'll ask us what we do for a living. And yes. you, you know, if you're being honest, sometimes I lie. Sometimes I say I'm a. Um, sometimes at the at the. Uh, the doctor the other day, I told them that I was a director of outreach, which isn't a whole lie. Ooh, but <laughs> Yeah, okay, there you go. I just didn't feel like getting into that because usually I say, you know, yes. I work at a church or whatever, and, uh, and the person's like, thing. well, you know, I don't go to church, but I'm spiritual, but not yes. religious. And then they feel like they are like, in confession with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I don't really care, but yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to drink my wine. And apologizing for cursing <laughs> and... It's almost like you, they're apologizing for their lack of church participation. You're like, I'm just trying to get through this doctor's appointment. Yes, I don't, we don't I, need to have a confessional moment together. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Let me enjoy my old-fashioned in peace. Oh, it's so true. Uh, but also, you know, one of the articles points out we see this rising on dating apps. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, years ago I'd be on a dating app and, you know, you have to check the little things, like the little boxes of, like, yeah. who you are. And I'm like, oh, Protestant or whatever, <laughs> if I feel like it. Right. And then there's people who will, like, message you who are spiritual but not religious and right. which is totally fine um but then if they get into deeper conversations about who you are and what they you know what you do it's always this kind of oh, big yes. explaining it's game a big conversation and many people don't really know you know their their explanation of it is so uh to me shallow right right right, right and right. so it becomes right. a frustrating interaction because you know they're not really able to articulate clearly what they even mean by it well of course and and we are uh you and I particularly but a lot of ministers and churchy people like us um have spent a lot of time thinking about why we are participating in organized religion because this has been a calling for us and and so we're hard to talk to if you don't have an, a very well-articulated position on why you just decided you're not going to church anymore because mm-hmm. sometimes it's just time and brunch and not a well-thought-through mm-hmm. thing. But for you and I and other ministers that go that approach this conversation, we can come from a place of 
saying, well, you know, why don't you go to church? Or, of course, this is how I'm very churchy, so this is who I am, and, you know, mm-hmm. take it or leave it. So it's like they don't have that as an app, take it or leave it, you know. It's right, like, right. But, they're, yeah, you're right. They're, it comes across as spiritual, and that's almost like a new denomination right. on these apps it's, mm-hmm. or on the form. It's like Protestant, Catholic, Baptist, you know, yeah. and then it's like spiritual. <laughs> And you're like, wait a second, what? Yeah. How is that distinct from Catholic or yeah. Pro- Protestant? So, um, yeah, I think that that that's really interesting, um, and, and I, I find it happening all the time. With I say, like, I'm an executive director of a nonprofit. That's my. <laughs> I could when I don't yeah. want to go into all the churchy stuff. You right. Know? It's simpler, right? It's, simpler. it's just so simpler because I, you know, and I don't. I mean, the other thing is our church is very unique. So do I really want to spend the Time. next 25 minutes explaining why our church is, you know, it's the whole Baptist thing we talked about for the right. whole identity. Do I want to explain why I'm ba- why I'm not that kind of Baptist and mm-hmm. all that? Sometimes it's just easier not to go there right. with people, you know. Um, but you're right. People want to apologize. And the thing that actually happens to me more often is I have this kind of constant run-in with people in the community who are members of our church mm-hmm. but don't come. Mm. And then they feel like they have to apologize for not having met me before and mm. and not coming. And I so I have this joke that I always say as I say, you know, some of our best members don't come. You know? <laughs> and so uh, – which is actually true probably. Mm-hmm. But it's um, it's just a disarming way of saying like this is not a moment for judgment for you. Right. Just because we ran into each other doesn't mean you have to spend the rest of the day guilty that you haven't come and heard me preach yet. Like yeah. I don't – that's not how I live my life. I'm mm-hmm. not sitting around counting up the numbers and names of all people who are members and haven't come to hear me, hear me preach in four years you yeah. know, or haven't come to church in five years or whatever. That's not how I think about the world. You know, I don't have time for that. Right. I have plenty of other time for other things. Mm-hmm. Plus, I don't think it's helpful to be in a space of judgment with those who are making a very personal decision, uh, sometimes a family decision, sometimes a very life uh, altering decision mm-hmm. about whether or not to attend religious services or yeah. participate in religious community. That's their personal choice. And I don't think there's it's a time just because you run into me in the supermarket that we need to have a whole thing about that together. Mm-hmm. We can just say, hey, you know, that's good zucchini. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it's fresh. Right. Like get that stuff. Right. You know? I also think that even not from our end as a judgment thing, but I also am always curious about sort of the the nature of the apologizing. Mm. You know, what, what is it mm-hmm. about your experience as a, a member of SBNR that you feel like you have to say sorry for yeah. it, right? Like, I don't I don't say sorry when I say I'm Christian or when I say I'm, true. I work at That's a Baptist true. church or when yeah. I say I, I don't say sorry. So what what is it about this category of people that we are always um, interacting with those who are apologizing for it? And perhaps it's because they have not fully fleshed out Right. All the stuff. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they just know I don't want to go to church or I yeah. don't want to be a part of a religious community and that's all I really know. Yeah. I would rather – is there a box for that on these? <laughs> <laughs> There's not a box for that. I haven't thought about it yet. <laughs> so we're going to be diving into uh, some of this conversation. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what does it even mean? Mm. That's my big thing when I – you know, mm. my big chip on my shoulders. What do you even mean? What are you what talking about? What do you mean about? by that? Yes. Um, and I, I, I feel particularly deep about this because – deeply about this because I come from a culture of spiritualism mm, mm-hmm. in the South where um, the syncret- the syncretizing of religion, right? Mm-hmm, you have people who mm-hmm. are Catholic, voodoo, and something else, and they are called spiritual people. Right. And so it really means something very specific where I'm from in New Orleans. And so when I hear people say I'm spiritual, I'm like, are you sure about that? <laughs> because yes. okay. uh, it means yeah. something very different. And uh, Dolores Williams, a great womanist theologian, a mother of womanist theology, talks about this for a whole chapter in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, about right. the spiritual church, the universal spiritual church, and how it was born out of African-Americans feeling like they didn't have a space in, in many religious spaces. Yeah. Um, a place well, in, yeah. Well, um, Ruby Sales talks about the, that, too, how there was the African spiritual tradition mm-hmm. was carried by the, those who were kidnapped and brought over here against their will mm-hmm. and enslaved. Um, and how they mixed and created a new form of Christianity mm-hmm. by mixing and syncretizing African mm-hmm. spiritual traditions mm-hmm. and practices with the Christianity that they inherited from 
those who were in a position of authority and domination and oppression mm -hmm. and made a, their own religion, new religion, a liberative religion out of that. Right. And, and so I think that there's a spirituality then that's at the heart of the sort of black church tradition, right. uh, black Christianity tradition that is built within this beautiful kind of mixing and merging of African spiritual traditions that we have to say spiritual because we really don't have another category for mm -hmm. it. You know, mm -hmm. it is interesting that we don't call them religions, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Well, yeah, well, because there are more than one happening at one there time. There are many, many. <laughs> you know, right? You know, That's so, right. Uh, so I, I'm always interested in diving into some some terms and what does it even mean. So. I'm curious about your thoughts about what does spiritual mean. I mean, we we have religion and mm. we have spiritual, and people mm -hmm. are saying I'm this, but I'm not that. And some people are saying I'm both. Yeah, <laughs> people are saying okay. So I so let's do. I want to do a fair reading. Can we try to do like let's do the best reading of what they're trying to communicate? Okay. And then I want to step back and then let's problematize that particular kind of communication by looking at the words linguistically and historically. Okay. And talking about other ways of looking at what they're saying. Okay. You know? So like um, for me, um, the word spiritual, um, it's it, – what does – I don't know what that means when you say that and, and, and distinguish it from religion. But I, what I think they're saying is I have faith mm -hmm. in a higher power mm -hmm. or something bigger than me, mm -hmm. uh, a, a metaphysical – uh, existence or a metaphysical plane mm -hmm. of existence beyond what I can see and feel. Um, and yet I have made a decision consciously not to participate in a community of practice. Okay. That's what I think they're saying mm -hmm. when they say I'm spiritual but not religious. So what that means is that they have distinguished – their personal, individual connection to a higher power or creator or the source of all existence mm -hmm. from their participation in a community of practice. And that's how I th – that's I think the best reading of what they're actually saying. Okay. All right. I can get down with some of that. I mean that – I don't know that that's – the words mean what they say. Saying, they think right, they're saying, right. but but usually it, it usually when they say but not religious, it's not so much. Uh, some people, for some people, it is about I don't want to do all the rites and stuff. But for most people, they're saying I don't want to be a part of the community that a community like a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a Wiccan group or mm -hmm. whatever. I I just don't or or but a Buddhist meditation community. group. Well, I think that's the thing that's a struggle right now is that we know that people of all ages in America are lonelier than they ever have been. That's right. Are um, uh, suffering from their loneliness in a way they never have been, are turning to forms of medication, alcohol, numbing, and violence as a way to solve their loneliness uh, in ways that they never have been before, mm -hmm. using technology as a simulacrum, a simulation of connection as a way to mask their pain and desperation of their loneliness mm -hmm. more than ever before. And yet they are – we are in general more resistant to participation in community than ever before while at the same time wanting it. Yeah. That's the paradox of human existence in America in the 21st century. So like there is a great book by Robert Putnam that looks at this trend called Bowling Alone. Mm. And it's all about the decline of you know bowling leagues and basically just all voluntary associations, which is a terminology for all things like – Volunteer volunteerism, mm -hmm. participation in nonprofit groups, mm -hmm. um, just voluntary associations like Kiwanis and what are the, all the others? Uh, Rotary. Yeah, and, all all of the social the social yeah. clubs that are also service organizations. Right, have all and well, just even just bowling league, something that was just mm -hmm. purely entertainment and fun. Yeah, all, all, have all disintegrated and disintegrated at the same time frame in American life, mm -hmm. and. As that was happening, Putnam's argument is that the social fabric and our concern for one another and the common good and our relationships with each other have been frayed further than they ever have been before. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's not just church. Mm. Um, it's, it's this – but the paradox is there because you're right. People want community right. and, yet they, and yet they don't. 
they both do and don't want community or they want hmm. they want a new kind of community experience that doesn't come with all the things that voluntary associations used to come with or they're building new voluntary associations. It's almost like they don't want commitment. They want community, but they don't want to be a part of something that's going to hold them accountable in terms of their time, their commitment level, yeah. right? You, when you think about even some of the social service mm-hmm. organizations, I think a lot about sororities, um, you know, the the ones that keep that continue post-college graduation fraternities, right? Mm-hmm. People are complaining, like, I don't want to come to this meeting once a month. I don't want to. <laughs> but they want to be a part of the group. They want to say, I yeah. am a member of such and such, but they don't want to actually, you know, they roll right. their eyes if they have to actually be committed in a way that is time-consuming for them. Right. They want a sense of belonging, mm-hmm. and yet don't want to have to have all the stuff that comes with that usually in in the history of American voluntary yeah. associations. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I would th- ask about that and just inquire is why don't they feel like they have the time? Yeah. Why don't they feel like they want the commitment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't – that's a – question. Where is that coming from? Right. And so do you think those the people, some of the people who identify as SBN are are having this kind of battle? I don't have the time. Yeah. I'm going to sleep in on Sunday because I'm tired. Why are they tired? What, what's happening during Absolutely. their work week? Absolutely. You know? So I have families say this to me all the time. You know, they'll say, I really want to participate in choir, for instance, but that the night that choir rehearsal hap- happens to be the only night that my I'm home with my kids at a decent hour and can eat dinner with them and put them to bed without having some other rehearsal or something happening mm-hmm. in their lives, whether it be soccer practice or something, you know, tutoring or whatever particular ballet, you know, dancing that mm-hmm. they're involved in. So we this is the only family time we have, and it's just a sacrifice we can't make at this stage in their life. Mm-hmm. And then you, when you get out of practice – then it's very easy never to go back to it. That's the one that's one I hear. Yeah. The other is I hear from people saying, look, Sunday is the only day I get off at all. I'm working actually a lot of times on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And and when and Saturdays my kids got games most of the day and sometimes Sundays too. But Sunday afternoon is like a pure, beautiful time of the the this like calm before the next storm. That's right. And am I gonna take that time to give it to the church or am I gonna give it to my family? And the the pressure, right, that that they have been put under because of work demands has mm-hmm. made these choices harder, which mm-hmm. some would say is that this is all the result of an increasing secularization of society, that as soon as you change blue laws and the stores are open on Sunday mornings mm-hmm. or Saturday afternoon or whenever, then you've changed church participation. And as soon as people are having soccer games at 10 a.m. And I hear, yes. I hear older members complain about this all the time. You know, it used to be you couldn't get into, couldn't get a drink at all on Sunday. Then it was you could get a drink till noon on Sunday. Yeah. Now it's you can get a drink whenever on Sunday, right? <laughs> and that just changes what people want to do on the mornings, yes, right? Yeah. It used to be that there was never a soccer game until after two o'clock on, oh, sa- on a Sunday, yeah. if there was one on Sunday at all. Right. You know, it was there was no extracurricular activities on Sundays because those were holy days set mm-hmm. apart. Now that was in a very Christian dominated society. That right. That doesn't count because Saturdays is a difficult if you're for, if you're Jewish. For temple yeah, or Friday Fridays afternoon. For yeah. yeah, I mean it's just doesn't really it only really works for a Christian society. And so right. as you become less dominated by Christianity, you you also lose some of that fabric that was knitting together religious communities in a particular way. So mm. it's like one of those things where it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. We right. did need to, you know, dethrone Christianity in American society some right? because it was too dominant. And yet by by doing so legally with laws, we in fact created a, a, a similar problem in some ways. But there are other there are other pressures like the work week. That's right. The work week, being tired, um, being overcommitted in other things, right. um, traveling now. People are more mobile than they ever have been in terms of work. So you right. can be out of town six you know, weekends in a row, right? right that's that's right. the nature yeah. of your business, right? Right. Um, right. You don't have to stay in one place. You don't have to be tethered to the institution, the building mm-hmm. that you work in. A lot mm-hmm. of you, you got your phone with you and your internet and email, and you can do most of your work from wherever you are all the time. Right. Uh, and people are con- – actually, people are kind of constantly working because yeah. their phones are on them all the time and they yeah. just never stop. So, th- you know, there's – but you, but here on the same time, this is where we also see this – 
huge rise in mindfulness practice mm, and mm. meditation apps on your phone. There's like 25 apps for meditation. There is a, another Facebook post every day from a new company that's pioneering practice because they figured out actually that meditation and mindfulness has a tremendous benefit health-wise. Mm-hmm. So now it is becoming commodified right, right as a part of American – but I see it as a simply kind of like a survival practice of surviving surviving the onslaught of 24-hour news, nonstop technological mm-hmm. connection, nonstop connectivity. And lack of sleep. Lack of sleep and a work week <laughs> that never ends. That's right. And I would say, I mean, we have a, a mindfulness group that meets here in this church mm-hmm. once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. They meet here. And mm-hmm. some, one of their meetings is on Sunday mornings at like 8.30 or something That's like right. that. And Thursday evening. And Thursday evening. So... So there are people who fall in that category who might say I'm spiritual but not religious. But in fact, they're probably more religious than some of the people who are Christian or Jewish exactly. because they're coming here every twice a week to, to meditate together or to do a mindfulness practice together. They're doing practice. Yeah. But I would not consider them so personally, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure – I don't know how they would self-identify. But I would not consider them spiritual but not religious I, because they have a community of praxis that they participate yes. in maybe two or three times a week. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I mean, I, I agree. And I know that some people who but fall they within might that, that community they might say that. You know, so they like, might, oh, I'm not religious. I, right. I, I'm, I just do yoga. Because they just well, don't like what the word religion <laughs> identifies. Has, right, well, has, yoga is a practice. Right. It's a practice. And, and if, if you, you do yoga it in community, with people, you're doing, a, you're doing a religious practice. Yes. Right. That's right. Well, we have to – part of the work of this podcast then is looking at that term and expanding our mind as Christians about mm-hmm. what is a religious practice mm-hmm. and what is a, what is a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some religious practice – what are some religious practices that aren't church? I mean, I can name a few, but that aren't church. If you something that you do regularly uh, with with people who are also doing it regularly, so yeah, um, one is uh, going to see the Panthers. Okay, yeah, that is a that is about as a religious experience as many people participate in. Oh yeah, the saint the saints those saints people every Sunday. That's what they, <laughs> they do. That's their church. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what that's they do. That's their church, yeah. right? And for a lot of people that the, they go to the Panthers game, they have a coll- an experience of collective effervescence, cheering mm-hmm. for the same team. Mm-hmm. There's even some patriotic rituals that are happening at the during the game mm-hmm. throughout. There's so there's prayer. Your team is losing. Prayer. <laughs> even the teams are out there praying, right? right. You know. Um, there are rituals. There's mm-hmm. the there's food. There's mm-hmm. communion. Right. There's there's the French fries and the hot dog yeah. and the so, soft drink. There's there's particular religious attire. There's yeah. the 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 uniform that you mm-hmm. wear to the game. And there's even like rituals of tailgating mm-hmm. beforehand that involve food. Also, it's about as religious an experience as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a there's a, a scholar who we've had here. Um, speak at the church that we've invited, and his name is James, James K.A. Smith. We call him Jamie now because that's what he likes to go by. And when mm-hmm. he was here, he said that. But he has a number of books on what he calls cultural liturgies. Mm. And he describes yes. going to a NASCAR race as as significant a worship experience as going to church. Mm-hmm. And he describes going to the mall Mm-hmm. as a worship experience. In fact, he even has this whole description of the mall with its vaulted ceilings and its registers that look like an altar of exchange being mimicked after ancient religious practices. Mm. There's this soft music playing to put you in a particular place. There are vaulted ceilings to make you feel a sense of metaphysical power. Mm. And you have an exchange across a counter where you give your card or cash and someone gives you a shirt or shoes or phone or whatever. And so you're at the altar of exchange. So there's an altar. Then there's always food in the mall. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes – and people shop in groups a lot of times, particularly young people, right? Which is the biggest demographic for advertisers anyway. Yeah. Uh, to get them hooked into a particular store, a particular vibe, or a particular mm-hmm. style at a young mm-hmm. age, and so you go. To, I mean, if you go to South Park Mall, that's a religious experience right there. I mean, that's <laughs> well, a. I mean, it's the most yes. yeah, very frustrating, <laughs> very expensive, and it's also one of the high, most highly trafficked malls in the mm, world. Right. More people come to that mall than in, than a lot of other malls yeah. in America. You know, if you go to Concord Mills, that's a religious. That experience. is an experience, absolutely. Right. I would even go as far to say, you know, social social clubs. So mm. um, I think a lot about 
I mentioned the sorority and fraternity thing before where I'm from. That's huge African-American fraternities and sororities and your monthly participation, your dues, mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. the rituals that go along with that. Um, and, and just kind of the, the social and there's ethics there, right? Because they are all service organizations. But even yeah. the ones that aren't sororities and fraternities, the ones we have a lot of social aid and pleasure clubs in New Orleans. So huh. I think about the Zulu Club. They put on a parade every year, but they're most known for their work in the community throughout the year. Of course, they're yes. private gatherings with right. their suits on that are black and gold and they're pins that say I'm a member of Zulu, right? There's a there's a tradition of I'm a member of Zulu, but he's a member of that club and he's a member of that, right? And so there's a tradition there, almost like church. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, there's yes. an ownership. You've bought into it financially. Of course. You attend regularly enough. Yes. Um, there's a social aspect and a service aspect. And yes. So yes. If you could never go to church and still be religious if you're a part of one of those clubs. Exactly. <laughs> well, so what we're doing now, we've pro- kind of problematized the word spiritual a little bit because yeah. there's a there's some work that needs to be done around what does it mean to be spiritual. Every mm-hmm. religious tradition imagines that it's spiritual, right. right? There's a spirituality that's embedded within every religious tradition. And there's what Richard Rohr and others call the perennial spiritual tradition, which is the connection of all religious traditions, spiritualities that connect even more deeply than the religious differences. Mm-hmm. So it's how Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King Jr., and and Gandhi mm-hmm. and Abraham Joshua Heschel are all impacting King's religious thought because mm-hmm. their spiritualities all contain this idea of peaceful peacefulness and nonviolence and love and and so there's a spirituality that's even deeper, a mystical tradition that's deeper than all the religious traditions that right. connects them all. Right. And then there's these other ways that we use the word spiritual, mm-hmm. right? Like I just – I go to yoga, right? Yeah. That's not as complex, but it is also that. Yeah. But the word religion needs lots of problematizing because we <laughs> we don't – Christians particularly don't have a, a thick enough uh, or an expansive enough understanding of what the word religion mm. means. It's not just communities of practice. Mm. Um, it, it is it is anything that – I like Tillich's understanding here is what is your ultimate concern? And he Tillich sort of calls God that, but yeah. but I think Tillich would also say that whatever is your ultimate concern is your God. And mm. so <laughs> now that's that's going to make some people a little squirmy. Yeah. So if your ultimate concern is your children, then your children are your God. Yeah. Family is your God. Or your organization. If your organization is your is is your ultimate concern. If your mm-hmm. if the church is your ultimate concern, then the church can be a God instead of God. You yeah. Know? Uh, if you yourself are so selfish that you are your own ultimate concern, then mm. you are you are your own god. You know, there's well, and then you can continue from that. If the Panthers are your ultimate concern, if NASCAR is your ultimate concern, if Duke basketball right. is your ultimate concern, I'll just throw myself under the bus. <laughs> if uh, you know, if whatever yeah. it is, at the Saint. I mean, you can yeah. just think about it. If if shopping and your, looking right. stylish is your ultimate concern, then you have made that appearances. your god or a god or. The ult- well, you've made it. You've made it a god if it's yeah. a concern. Yeah. If it's it, your ultimate, but if it's your ultimate concern, it's your it is your god above all gods, right? Yeah. And so that's one thing we're doing there is trying to help people see that a religion you can have a religious practice that you're not even aware of is religious, but is more significant to you religiously and mm. personally than than your participation in religious tradition. The problem in America, right, is that almost every American has many religions. And yeah. is unaware of how many religions they have or how you're born into it. Right. You, you know. Right. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America every morning at eight AM in elementary right. school. That's right. <laughs> you have <laughs> you know? Well and sometimes I think I have thought about this lately. Like sometimes we like to describe systemic evil or systemic injustice as these systems that are you know, Paul says principalities and powers that are bigger than us that are you know, warring for the you know future of humanity, and uh, it's kind of pervasive evil that's bigger than individual decision making. So we're caught in these systems. We've talked about how we're always caught in these systems, mm-hmm. and the systems of you know racial systems and class systems and economic systems of oppression. And um, I think some of those systems really operate more like religions. Mm. I mean, I I always po- posit to people, you know, what is it that you would you can't see. Well, what is it that doesn't really exist for real is a social construct, but you're willing to die for or kill for, right? 
you know, like that sounds more mm. like a religion than it does yeah. like a system to yeah, me. Yeah, you really, yeah. You're, so like I think about be ra- a martyr. Like let's talk about race. Yeah. People are willing to kill and die for their race. Yeah. We know this in American history is pretty mm-hmm. clear, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, why would you be what? Why would you be willing to die for a social construct? Hmm. It's your god. Because you've it's made your... whiteness your god. Whiteness is your religion, right? You know. Um, or why would you be willing to kill and die for America? Because America has become your god. Hmm. You know, America is, is your ultimate concern. You know, hmm. these are decisions that we make, right? Yeah. And so we, but the way we justify them is we bleed them with our religious tradition. So we feel that we are we we imagine right. our religious tradition or our our churchy tradition is is hmm. distinct from this other thing that we're willing to kill and die for. But in fact, it's, it's so wrapped connected. up together, we can't distinguish the two from each other. Mm-hmm. God and country are yeah. melded. Well, I'm really God. killing for peace, which is what Jesus came right. for. <laughs> well, yeah. There's so many things <laughs> about that earth. statement, right? Yeah. That's we're, trying, we're trying to make peace on earth everywhere else, right? That's what, that yeah. sounds like Dr. Meverden said, that's what the Romans said. <laughs> <laughs> right? They right. said it's... You know what? What as Tacitus once said, Rome uh, makes a desert, and they call it peace. Hmm. Um, But I so I think this to me the only way to really get at what this definition is trying to get to is the question of of community and practice. Right. Because I mean, so let's talk about Jesus for a minute, right? All right. This is we are in a church. I guess so. We can talk about Jesus with Jesus. Uh, <laughs> of course. He's just all right. With He's me. just right, right. <laughs> uh, okay, so Jesus. Uh-huh. All right. So here's a lot of Christians in America, liberal and conservative, I'm talking like all across the board, um, imagine and believe strongly that they can have a re- relationship with Jesus. Mm hmm. As an individual, mm-hmm. a personal, you have to have a personal, a personal relationship. Individual. With in fact, Jesus. some people, some churches have promoted that as the most important thing. Too, oh, right? I mean, when you you get up in front of the church, when you're getting right. accepting you Jesus Christ as your personal Lord you and get Savior, converted, you mm-hmm. get baptized. You're making a personal. It's a personal relationship with Jesus, and of course, that's mostly in traditions that imagine Jesus to have to be fully divine, right? So there's mm-hmm. lots of that going on, right? Um, but uh, and so a lot of Americans imagine that they can have that personal relationship with Jesus and never participate in a community of practice mm-hmm. or have participated in a community of practice early as a child, gotten baptized and never have to go back once saved, always saved mm-hmm. or once with Jesus, always with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I can and talk to God for myself, which I, is I, true. I, which you can. And, <laughs> but, and so that's not that's, – we don't want to posit this as an either, either or. Right. At least I don't. Um, but I think a lot of people imagine that the community of practice is not necessary for that relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, and some will say, you know, and I don't even like, you know, the church, the liberals will say the church even ruined Jesus by writing all that crap that Jesus didn't actually say mm. and putting it in there. And, and Paul into, comes Paul, on yes, and right. creates the religion. Jesus was a, a spiritual teacher and, and Paul created the religion. Mm. That's in some ways inaccurate. Yeah. So I kind of want to give people some sense of that historically so they can lean into this a little bit. So I was telling Mia before we got on here, my personal understanding of the New Testament, the mm-hmm. Bible, um, mm-hmm. is that there are no, – there is – we have – we don't have access now, 2,000 years later, mm-hmm. to the Jesus who existed before the church. Mm. We don't. Nobody has a first. Nobody has a, uh, an account that was written while he was here because they all came after his death. That's I mean, right. Like several. I mean, they're all decades. written after his death. Many, <laughs> yeah. many years after. Yeah, his, even Mark 70, is written starting with before, seventy, probably. Even Mark is written. Well, maybe you know, two decades, three decades yeah. after his yeah. death, right? So, so what? And a lot of all the all the gospels arise from a community of practice. Mm-hmm. There, Matthew is not Matthew. There's, it was not written by a guy named Matthew. It was named un, put under the name Matthew to make it seem like it was apost- had apostolic authority to the person who walked and lived with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, the community there was a community that birthed the Gospel of John. A community birthed the Gospel of Matthew. A community birthed the Gospel mm-hmm. of Mark. They came out of a particular religious community. One came from Antioch. One mm-hmm. came from Jerusalem. One may have come from Ephesus. 
Um, we don't know exactly where the, some of those communities are. Scholars have lots of theories, but none mm-hmm. of the gospels arose from one individual's perception of what no. Jesus did and said. They arose out of a community of religious practice. All of them arose from a church. None of them were written by people who did not participate in a church already when they wrote them. So right. they have – they're already churched and every right. one of Paul's letters is written to a church and from a church. And even the Revelation, which Dr. Meverden talked about, mm-hmm. was written to seven, seven churches. churches. There's, so there's no non-church New Testament. Mm-hmm. You can't – and this is where some of the Jesus Seminar folks I think got frustrated in their work as they went over this for 20 to 30 year history and tried to find out what are the authentic sayings of Jesus mm-hmm. and distill them away from the rest of the stuff that was added later. Yeah. It's a fail. It's a failed project because all because the gospel itself is written in such a way that authentic and inauthentic don't really matter. It's written as a theological account. Everybody, everybody's making an argument in every single right. gospel. There's a perspective. There's an argument. Right. You know, there's a point of focus. And the argument is coming from a community of practice. Yeah. So there's no non-church New Testament. So there's no, we have no access to Jesus. Uh, to a to a Jesus who is not already churched when we receive him, mm-hmm. and so the idea that we can that Jesus, you know, Jesus was a spiritual teacher and Paul started Christianity doesn't account for the fact that Jesus gathered around him twelve followers to reconstitute the the re, re, restore the twelve tribes of Israel and mm-hmm. to build a religious movement and created a community around him and did not just walk around the earth and say, just change your life as an individual and everything will be fine. Yeah. And, you know, didn't talk about systems and structures and communities and priests and, and um, you know, so Jesus was deeply concerned with community. Uh, Gerhard Lofink, who is a, a biblical scholar, has an entire book called Jesus and Community and a number of other – and another book called Does God Need the Church, mm. which is a phenomenal question. And if you look through the Bible – God constantly calls individuals either to become a people or individuals to help lead a people. Mm-hmm. And the individuals are not called out to distinct from the community. Um, they sometimes are called to create a new community. They're sometimes called to lead a community. Mm-hmm. You think about Moses, Moses is called to lead a community. And so when when you hear the prophets talking, they're not always talking about just the king, they're talking about Israel, the community, the mm. nation, you know, and when, when Revelation talks about the church, it says the saints, yeah. all the saints of yeah. the churches, you know, it's talking about the religious community and you see this God's desire to call a community of people into relationship with God is sort of the story of the Bible. So, so yes, yeah, so Jesus is calling us to community. God is calling us to community. So what happened? And I want to, mm, I want to mm. go look at a few of these stats. What happened that brought us to where we are now, where we're seeing this rise in individualism, which is contributing to people saying, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I have a faith, but not a faith in a community practice, right? Yes. So how did we get here? And I just want to go over just a few stats. Yes. From So the Pew, Pew Research, I mean, most people are familiar, but they do a lot of, I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, they just came out with something a couple of months ago on like, which which tradition has the longest sermons? And of Ooh. course, like you know, Baptists were up there. Uh, <laughs> ben, <laughs> yeah, and w- w- tell them what the average was: forty five minutes. <laughs> the average—that's the average, folks. Yeah, we're we're pretty Presbyterian Way over below here. that. <laughs> um, but they do a lot of these researches. It's great. It's great. You can find it online. But there's a few articles, and they they took a time period from 2012 to 2017. Now Ben is going to take us back to the mm. 80s, but mm. from mm-hmm. 2012 to 2017, the decline from people identifying as spiritual and religious went from 59 percent to 48 mm. percent. Um, the people who identified as Spiritual but not religious went from 19% to 27%. Yes. Then there's other categories, people sure. who are atheists, who are agnostic, and we can get into the definition and sparse that, yeah. that out a little bit. But I just want to give you a framework of mm. the, the increase in just a five-year period. But that that's really been happening, or the decline in people who identify as religious has been happening since the 80s. And so I want to talk a little bit about that and some of the economics behind it. Yeah, well, there's a lot of factors behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, I. So my my read on this and from the work, the reading that I've done to kind of see the tra- tracing this decline, I've been talking about this with church members for a while now. When I first got here, I went to the life class to kind of describe it to them. I really think our members, and we're going to spend a year this year with identity kind of talking about it again, our members need to come to a, everybody really needs to come to a grips that we are not 
and we will never ever be again in a world where church is the center of mm-hmm. of the community. Mm-hmm. Any church mm-hmm. in any community, right? Um, because of the way the world has adapted and changed, and technology is front and center. Church used to be the only game in town. There was mm-hmm. nothing else to do except mm-hmm. go to church. It was where the primary networking happened for people who were trying to get jobs and, and it was a primary networking for capital transactions, businesses. is where people met their spouses. It's mm-hmm. where people's families came together and stayed connected. It's where made their, their friend group came from church. Mm-hmm. That's just not the case anymore. Yeah. That's not how it works. So, and, uh, Just a yeah. caveat. And with technology, we don't need – to even go to church to hear a sermon. Exactly. Right. So even the social aspects, you know, yes. But even in terms of the faith formation, I can tune into a bunch of different churches that I love watching sermons. In fact, if you spent that hour watching three sermons instead of going to church, you're going to get a lot more stuff, right? Like you're just going to, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, that you can do to get, to grow on your own. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you have, it, it takes work to be a part of a community practice. It doesn't feel natural like it did. Even as late as the 80s and mm-hmm. 70s where and, – and our church, you know, one of the things my – one of my professors once said is that the worst thing that ever happened to Baptists in the South is that they were successful because mm. then they try to replicate the same success over and over again for the rest of their existence. Mm. You just can't do that because the world's changed. There will never be the kind of droves that came to church in the 70s. Mm-hmm. If you imagine our church returning to the former glory of the 70s, it ain't happening. Yeah. That's just not what we live in because 4,000 churches close every year. Yeah. America is in a steep, steep, rapid decline that you're saying just – jumped to a whole new level in the last seven years, let Mm -hmm. alone what it has been on the trajectory for since the 90s. So just to kind of track that, first you start with just church as the center of society. There's sort of an increasing secularization of society and people imagining that we're going to become like Europe, which we are headed toward. And America has kind of blocked those trends for a while because of its deeply religious sort of even civil religious commitments that it has without an established church and uh, all of the great awakenings and second great awakenings and Mm -hmm. passionate evangelicalism in America has sort of staved off some of the trends, but now it's catching up to us. Mm -hmm. And one of the factors that a lot of people don't talk about that has made it challenging is the economic factor behind uh, the decline in church attendance. So – uh, some will accuse me of blaming everything on neoliberalism uh, and neoliberal economic <laughs> policies. I'm happy to be accused of that because one day I hope that people will look back and see how disastrous that silent revolution was. Mm-hmm. But the decision, the decisions to create um, – so neo, part of what neoliberalism is, is not just economics like deregulation and privatization mm. and deindustrialization of industry. Yeah which uh, one of the examples I always give in my life of witnessing neoliberalism is I lived in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and while I was there, Bethlehem Steel, the, one of the largest steel producers in America, crumbled and everybody lost their jobs and it went under, went under and all the people who were my friends' parents had to find jobs somewhere else in, in, their, mm. in that area because there was no more Bethlehem Steel. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to Kannapolis, North Carolina, home of Fieldcrest Cannon towels and sheets and mm. uh, one of the largest um, towels and sheet you know, uh, textile companies in yeah. America, which sold, moved, their, moved their business overseas. Mm. Uh, and all the people at Fieldcrest Cannon had to find jobs. You know, and the only place in Kannapolis for that was like Walmart and retail and right. Concord Mills yeah. and – just changed the livelihood of an, what was a mill town, a mill yeah. community. Both of those are examples of deindustrialization, and um, but they also accompany things like the privatization of schools, the commodification of everything. We want to yeah. privatize schools. We mm-hmm. want to privatize parks. We want to privatize uh, healthcare. We mm-hmm. want to privatize education. We want to privatize everything because we want to make money off of everything. There should be no public good. There should be all only private goods that people can make money off of. I remember that being a huge conversation as a kid. I didn't know my mom was talking about. She worked mm-hmm. for the water company in New Orleans, and you know, I was like three and four, and I kept hearing this word privatization, privatization. I was like, what are they talking about? And now, you know, now I know what was happening in right. the early nineties. Yeah, uh, what was going on with even the water company? What accompanied some of these? Practices of uh, deindustrialization, deregulate. Oh, the other thing. So, deregulating all the financial sector, totally deregulating mm. the financial sector. 
um, and sort of letting loose the kind of sort of savage capitalism, not not the capitalism of the 1950s, but a sort of a savage version of capitalism that's totally deregulated, um, leads to an, a the the destru- destruction, the systematic destruction of unions. Hmm. Why are unions? We don't have unions here the way that we did in the 90s, even let alone the 80s or the 70s or 60s, right? Mm, yeah. Um, so it leads to the destruction and elimination of unions and it leads to a, a more people working longer hours at more hard, harder, different kinds of jobs, mm. which is also what unions protected people from. You yeah. know? Um, when you had a union person, you didn't have – you couldn't work a certain – there were certain hours that you had to have off and that's what unions gave us, right? The holidays yeah. and child labor laws and – protections, worker protections, a lot of those things are gone. So now, you know, industry can demand certain kinds of, uh, of, of things from everybody from the very bottom, the poorest folks who are struggling to even get a job mm-hmm. in retail part-time to middle managers who are working over the course of the weekends yeah. to uh, stay-at-home moms mm-hmm. who don't see their spouses, stay-at-home husbands or moms or non-binary folks who don't see their spouses uh, while they're raising their children, mm-hmm. um, who are you know like sort of work widows and Burn, work widows, experiencing, experiencing burnout of their own, burnout because they're they're laboring. Yeah. that's labor. Yeah. is taking care of children, right? Yeah. So, what I'm saying about all that is one of the things that that does the economic policies begin to have an are accompanied by a radical individualism and a and an approaching of all individuals as consumers. Mm. And when you start to approach all individuals of consumers, you raise you raise the stakes for individualism, and you you overly emphasize individual autonomy mm-hmm. and their distinction from others, and their lack of their no need for dependence on another human being. And mm-hmm. we don't talk about the common good; we talk about you, your identity, yeah. your livelihood, your yeah. clothes, your style. Look how Im- independent you are. Look how much flavor you have. Buy this makeup. Buy this. T-shirt, buy these clothes, buy this thing because we want you to shop and feed the economic system that is fueling neoliberal liber, neoliberalism, and mm-hmm. so all that's happening. But the the radical individualism combined with the excessive work and no Sabbath and no time off makes it harder for a number of things that we can see we can track a decline for, and that is the family and the church. Yeah, families have gone from what they were in the fifties, sixties, seventies. Uh, these tight-knit sort of bedrock of American society to being so frayed, fragile, and volatile. Mm. And you know what? It's always – people always want to say, well, you know, it, it's just the problem is the African-American family. Mm. And I want to say, no, no, no. The problem is econ- neoliberal economic policies yes. that make it impossible for the a- African-American family to ever see each other because yeah. they're working five jobs and they don't see their kids. What do you want them to do? Right. You know? Right. Um, well, they should commit and come together. You mean and starve? And sit at home at the dinner table and not eat? Or like, they would say – or the argument would be something like, well, you know, if they put this centered God in their lives or something like if they would just be churched and, you know, right. then the, they would family, have, their family yeah, wouldn't the fall family apart. family would be better if they were <laughs> – but they can't go to church because they're working on they're Sunday. Working, right. That's, right. And that's the other thing. They can't go to church because they're working Sunday. They can't be home at dinner because they're working these three or four jobs. Mm-hmm. It, so th- these neoliberal economic policies and the way in which the – the capitalist sort of economic job system in America is working is destroying the very fabric that that our society was built on, which was leisure time mm. with family. Mm. That yeah. you were not working, yeah. you needed that to and leisure time with family or with a voluntary association. So right. you had time to give back into the community to or time for art, mm-hmm. time for people to create art, time for people mm. to create beauty and. Yeah. You know, I I think Charlotte could do a lot more on in its artistic capacity. We don't have the kind of art scene that we could have, and part of that is because we are a, we're a bank town, yes. right? You know, so and I think we you know we just we just voted down that huge bond for the arts in our in in Charlotte that mm-hmm. would have been so important that our art community needed that, uh, and so I I think we don't sometimes see the the. The, the way in which an economic change, you know, it's not capitalism itself. It's the way capitalism is appropriated and is practiced and, and deregulated that then bears down upon human relationships mm. in a ways that we don't look at. So 
Yeah. And then one more, one more point on that: the economics is not just controlling our time and human relationships, right? But also what we do with our resources, our Ooh. funds, our mm-hmm. financial resources, mm-hmm. right? And so we are, we because of all these uh, the the shift in economics over the past thirty or forty years, right? You're seeing pe- churches not just closing because people are spiritual but not religious; they're closing <laughs> because people can't tithe or yeah. give to the church the way that their our our parents or our grandparents right. were giving to the church, That's right? right? They can't. It's it, I mean, you know, I well because we there's a lot of things, but I, I have not yeah. given ten percent <laughs> on a consistent basis anywhere, anywhere, not just church, anywhere well, in years. And you look at how the economic situation bears down on folks who, you know, the the group that went to co- was in college right before the the recession, right, mm-hmm. and how they ended up having a lot of them had to go home and live with their parents. Right, they have not yet entered the work; they just entered the right. workforce later. And if, if you go, if you have, a, if you're a part of a church that is telling you you can't be a member unless you're giving ten percent, if you're hearing that kind of message as well, of yeah. course you're going to be like, I'm spiritual, yeah. not religious. Exactly. I'm, yeah, I don't need to give to that. Well, I Why can't would even I participate. I can't in even pay for my apartment. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's another way that the economic situation bears down on churches is that churches have less less money to they have less people contributing financially to help keep their ends meet. So, yeah. 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 I mean, there's. This is an important conversation for us to have because I think all these trends that we're looking at, there are there are always more factors than we can imagine. You mm-hmm. know, obviously people don't like church because of the abuse and the hypocrisy and the scandal and the bad dogma mm-hmm. and the history of just hating, you know, marginalized outcasts, right? It's certainly uh, secularization, but we have to look at the way the economics is bearing down on this, yeah. this new phenomenon. Now, this coming Sunday, uh, Dr. Jim Wallace will be with us. Mm. And Jim Wallace is phenomenal, and he has a great book called Christ in Crisis. I encourage you to uh, lean into that, uh, to buy a book when he comes. But he says a lot of stuff that talks about the church being in crisis. He also talks a little bit in his first chapter about people uh, walking away from Jesus or the co-opted Jesus that Mm. has been uh, Mm. held high in this country, which is why perhaps so many people people are identifying as SBNR right. um, because they're just so tired of the BS. I won't curse <laughs> on this podcast. They're so tired of mm. it. And he talks a lot about that and wanting us to reclaim Christ. So, yeah. I mean, I would really love for us to to listen to what he has to say. And I'm sure uh, next time I have been on the podcast, we can talk a little bit more about the, yeah. this work that he's that he's doing. We'll try to digest some of the stuff he brings us yeah. next time we're together. Yeah. yeah. So I'm so excited for this this series. Um, this is only the first episode. Our next episode, I want you to join us because we have a special guest who is a member of our church who actually brought us this idea. So she will All be right. on the podcast next episode, me and Artemis Elias. Yes, yes. Artemis. Dynamic person, a very active member of our church. So please join us as we continue this conversation, and we look forward to sharing with you. Bye. Bye.